uh, please stand and receive your word. I love being in Romans. Uh, we are already in chapter 2 right now. Uh, it is from verses 1 through 11, and I will read it for us. Therefore, if you remember all of chapter 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, uh, on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will, be, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but only unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the word for us today. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, it is my privilege to preach God's word for you today. Um, and uh, yeah, let me just bow, um, invite all of us to bow our heads in prayer as we uh, ask the Lord to speak to us today. Heavenly Father, we draw near to you. We ask that, Lord, you would speak to us through your word. Father, as we've been going through this Roman series, God, we are learning and being reminded about quite a bit of things. Uh, and even with various passages, we run into some difficult parts. Uh, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see and believe and trust in you, and that we may obey you according to what you desire for us and help us to turn to Christ for our salvation over and over and over again. Lord, uh, we pray for any unbelievers that might be in our midst. We pray especially for them. Lord, open their eyes, God. Lord, overcome their resistant hearts. May they be able to trust in your son today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to begin with a story. Uh, when I was in middle school, uh, there was a young adult staff who served in the youth group. Uh, he was very well respected by many of the people at the church. And during one of the church events, I believe it was like a revival uh, or might have been like a lock-in. Uh, he came with an earring on his left ear. And I remember a few of the youth kids back then, you know, came up to him with a judgmental tone. Ooh, you got an earring. And even I had thought, mm, that doesn't look very good on him. And you got to understand, back then, um, and this was a long time ago, uh, when I was a youth kid, a male getting piercings um, had a very negative connotation, especially for someone who was a prominent youth group leader. But during, I think it's like a Bible study after like a service, he took off his earring to show that there was actually no piercing. It was one of those fake ones where you could just kind of clip on, right, on your earlobe. So when, they found, uh, when the youth kids found out, they were like, whoa, that's so cool. And some kids were like, 
that's a relief. <laughs> but after he took it off, I think he said something along the lines of this. can't remember exactly. But he said, how many people do you think judged me today as I walked into church with an earring? And I think he wanted to make a point. Christians have the tendency to be quick to judge others. We form an opinion, conclusions about people prematurely and without truly getting to know them. And this chapter begins with Paul warning the Christians that they ought not to pass judgment so carelessly. And so today we will dive into the topic of judgment through this passage under three points. Number one, religious judgment. And number two, righteous judgment. And number three, redemptive judgment. Judgment. So, number one, religious judgment. Now, what do I mean by religious judgment? Because in the book of James, the word religion has a positive tone, a positive definition. So, for example, if you look with me in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, uh, in 27, it says, the religion that is pure and undefiled before God, which is to care for the afflicted and to be holy. But also in 26, talks about how if anyone thinks he is religious but does not control his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. So the word religion in the Bible simply means practicing your faith in God, right? Practicing your faith in God. Pretty simple, right? But also Christians of today, we often use the word religion in a negative tone, negative definition as well, right? We believe that for every religious belief outside of Christianity, religion is the basis of one's salvation. But for Christians, religion is not the basis of our salvation, but the response to our salvation. Did you hear that? For Christians, religion is not the basis of our salvation, but the response to our salvation. All other religions say you have to do this and that to earn your way to heaven. But only Christian religion says no matter how hard you try, you can't earn your way to heaven. However, the problem is that even self-identifying Christians in the church often fall into worldly religion. Even some people who may have grown up in church live most all of their lives at church. Some of them still believe that they can earn their way to heaven. Oh, if I attend church, tithe, be good to people, have a lot of Bible knowledge, pray the right prayers, and even serve in a ministry, and surely that will get me to heaven, right? And I'm here to tell you that you are dead wrong. Spoiler alert, only faith in Jesus Christ alone brings us to heaven. So what happens when someone who believes that their religious and moral activities will earn their spot in heaven? It produces pride. And pride produces judgment on another. If you remember from Romans chapter 1 uh, in the past couple weeks, the Apostle Paul has been talking about how the world has become so corrupt due to the fact that people suppress the truth, the existence of God. 
And Paul even lists out some, you know, all kinds of different social, relational, family, character sins and breakdowns. And for the Jewish Christians, they would have immediately assumed that Paul was speaking about the Gentiles, right? Oh, those non-Christians out there. They are so foolish for suppressing God and worshiping all these crazy idols. We're not like them. However, Paul quickly turns it around and rebukes his Jewish Christian audience in the first part of verse 1. If you look with me, it says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Yes, you Christians, every one of you who judges. In other words, Paul is saying, Christians, I'm talking about you as well. You are also sinners, idolaters, haters of God. You also suppress God in other ways. Many Jewish Christians thought that they were religious. They were so proud of the fact that they had the laws of God and thought that they were obedient to the Lord. And so what do they do? They act like judges, passing judgment on others, thinking that they are better than them. But what do we see here? If we see the second part of verse 1, Paul accuses them saying that they are hypocrites. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You're not, you're not different from them. You're exactly like them. Even Jesus says that if we are so busy pointing out other sins that we fail to point out our own sins. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 3 to 5 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Can I ask you to do this exercise with me? For a few seconds, try to think of the most sinful person that you know and that you can imagine. Who is that? Or what do you imagine? Perhaps you may be thinking about some serial killer, dictator, child abuser, sexual predator. But guess what the Word of God says? It's me. I am the worst sinner that I know, that I can imagine. Because even the great apostle Paul would say, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst and that is not an exaggeration, but a genuine realization of how sinful he truly is. He doesn't even have the time to compare himself with others. Brothers and sisters, do you truly and deeply understand this and acknowledge this? Because the reality is some of us judge those who, are, who fall into this shameful, so, uh, uh, society-wise shameful sins or idols. When in reality, your sins and idols might be more subtle 
and not as shameful to society. Hey, at least I don't murder people or curse people out. But Jesus says that even if you hate your brother in your heart, you have murdered them in the sight of God. Hey, I don't commit adultery or whatever other crazy sexual sins that are out there. But Jesus says, even if you look at someone with a lustful intent, you have committed adultery in the sight of God. KCPC, who within or which group within this church do you find yourself judging to be worse than you? Is it the person whose church attendance is not as consistent as yours? Is it a person who is socially awkward? Is it the person whose political, even theological viewpoints is different from you? The ones who spend their Saturday nights irresponsibly come to church late? Or the first generation Koreans? Or the second gens? KCPC, are you turning to religion as the basis to judge others? Do you compare yourself with others by the measurement of religious activities? Even Jesus was judged by the religious people of his days, right? Matthew chapter 11, verse 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I wonder if we, KCPC, if, if we saw Jesus walking through those doors, how, if we would judge them, judge him, that's what I wonder as well. For those of you who felt like you are or you were judged harshly by being ignored, bullied, belittled, gossiped about, or even insulted, especially within the church, where we are supposed to welcome one another just as how Christ welcomed us. And I want to say, I am so sorry. So sorry that you had to go through all of that. And I would love to hear your stories of your hurt and see how we can grow as a church. And having said that, I also want to say, please be careful because I don't want you to judge those who are judging you with the same kind of religious judgment. Think about it. What happens when we feel judged by those around us? We punish them by judging them back, right? Man, they are hypocritical bigots. But guess what happens? If we do this, we are actually no better than those who judge us. We just become a part of the problem. And even if it's true that some people may pass judgment on you, I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity for you to meet some wonderful people who have no intention of judging you, but just want to get to know you at our church. So if you're visiting or coming back to church um, to give it another try, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad, and we welcome you. Now, I can't say that our church doesn't have its own issues and problems. The church is a messy place as well. We are all broken sinners that need Christ. But I can say that we will do our best to welcome you, regardless of whatever sins or struggles that you're going through, regardless of what ethnic, cultural, educational background you come from.
So I want to challenge you to lay down your own judgments and meet some of us. And if you are a KCPC, English Congregation member, I plead with you to extend a warm welcome to those whom you do not know or recognize or are unfamiliar with. KCPC, EC members, you are no longer guests of our church. You are the host of our church. Amen? Now to clarify, God never says, do not judge, period. If you look with me, John chapter 7, uh, verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, right? Don't judge a book by its cover, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, Jesus also says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. So Jesus simply warns us that as we judge others, we will be judged as well. So I like to differentiate this by saying, uh, there's a difference between judging as punishment versus judging as discernment. Punishment versus discernment. So the goal of judging as punishment is what? Condemnation, right? But the goal of judging as discernment is wisdom. Punishment is judging against people. Discernment is judging for people. And that's why good parents do not punish their kids when they are disobedient or do wrong. Rather, good parents discern for their kids because they want them to learn and grow and because they desire the best for them. So there may be disciplines. However, they don't punish. You see the difference? Judging against others sometimes stay hidden inwardly, right? In the form of gossip, slander, even avoidance. However, judging for others often lead to healthy and humble confrontation of speaking the truth in love. Well, now that we have identified the religious judgment, we can go to our second point, which is righteous judgment. Uh, What is the result of our hypocritical and religious judgments on one another? A righteous judgment will pour out against our religious judgment. And who is the only one able to give a truly righteous judgment? And that's God himself. He is the judge who judges the nations with absolute justice and without prejudice. We are not. Our judgments are often presumptuous and biased. If you look with me, verse uh, 2, 3, and 5 of today's passage, it says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath and judgment is not an easy topic to talk about even within the church. In fact, some people may wonder, wait a minute, isn't God all about love? Why why are we talking about wrath and judgment? Why does God demonstrate his wrath 
and His righteous judgment on people? Well, because God is a good and just God. Because if God does not enact justice, then He is not a good or just God. Because God is love, He must also hate sin and injustice. Especially committed against Him and others. God must punish the wicked if he is the righteous judge. Have you ever watched videos of court cases where these judges sentence various criminals to their punishment? And I've seen a lot of these videos where tears of regret and devastation flow from even some young teenagers convicted of crime where some are sentenced to life in jail. But another set of tears are being shed in the court. The victims' families as they rightfully demand justice. They shed tears of relief that justice has been served. That's why we see Abel crying out to God for justice when he was murdered by his own brother Cain. We all demand justice to a certain degree because you and I have also experienced some sort of injustice in our lives, right? But the problem is that we are not so quick to demand justice when it comes down to our own sins, our own wrongdoing. Because you will never see even the most seemingly righteous person run to receive their own punishments. So how will God pass his righteous judgment? Well, it's simple. If you look with me in verse 6 through 8, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will be wrath and fury. So to those who obey, God will give eternal life, namely heaven. But to those who disobey, God will give his wrath and fury, namely hell. I used to give this uh, trivia to a bunch of youth students in the past. I used to ask, hey guys, who rules over hell? Who's the ruler of hell? And the common answer I would get a lot is, Oh, it's Satan. But the answer, actual answer is, it's God. Right? Because even Satan, a fallen angel, is cast into hell by God to be judged. Hell, contrary to popular belief, is not separation from God. Hell is actually the unleashing of God's righteous wrath and fury upon sin. And the scary truth of the reality is that every human being deserves hell. Why? If you look with me in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 also says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So, the, so whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, churchgoer or non-churchgoer, God shows no partiality. 
He does not show favoritism. He will judge everyone according to their works, which everyone has failed. Now, you might ask, if God does not show partiality, why does he say in this passage, first the Jews and then the Greeks or slash Gentiles? And we'll go through this more in detail for the next few weeks as we go through Romans 2 and chapter 3. But just to quickly say, because the Jews were the first to receive the word of God in the Old Testament to have a clear moral standard, right? But in reality, that actually did not give the Jews that much of an advantage at all over the Gentiles to the Greeks. Because in fact, many Israelites, as we know, some of us know, perished during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their hardened hearts, even though they had the laws of God, and even though they witnessed miracles after miracles. So if anything, their advantage was actually to their own detriment because they thought God graded them on a curve. That's why many Jewish Christians in the Church of Rome and for many of us, have the mindset that as long as I'm doing better than those people out there, I'm doing fine. On the other hand, even the Greeks, the Gentiles, who do not receive the laws of God, will be judged by their own laws. Every single person lives by some sort of moral standards, right? And those moral standards come from God. How do we know this? Because everyone is made in the image of God. But the problem is that no one is able to even follow their own moral standards perfectly. So even if they are not exposed to Christianity or the Bible or the laws of God, God still has a righteous judgment against them according to their conscience and their moral standards that they set for themselves. God will judge both those who have the laws of God, the Jews, those even without the law, Gentiles, fairly and justly. That is what is meant by God shows no partiality. So if God hates sin, some of you might ask, why doesn't he smite me every time I commit a sin? Because the reality is, you and I would be smitten for all of our sins constantly without a single break. And this is not even considering the secret sins that we're not even aware about. Why doesn't God enact his righteous judgment immediately for every sin committed? Well, because everyone would be dead. Not a single soul would be standing here right now. We would all be facing God's wrath and fury right now. But the truth is, God is compassionate to sinners. He withholds his righteous judgment temporarily until the day of judgment. So don't get me wrong. God does not tolerate injustice. God is both the compassionate and the just God at the same time. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every evil thought, desire, action, word that we've 
said or committed against God and others will be held accountable at the day of judgment. He's recording it all. Don't think that we got away with that sinful thought. Don't think for one moment that just because we didn't get caught by someone else's view, that it's outside of the real judge's view. Yes, even those injustices that have been brushed under the rug throughout history, they will be put to justice. So we can both rest assured and be warned that God is not turning a blind eye to sin that has been committed by you or against you. He is simply being patient to all until the day when he unleashes his righteous judgment. Essentially, the reason why he is delaying his righteous judgment upon us is because he is inviting us to come to him while we are still able, which leads us to our final point, redemptive judgment, redemptive judgment. What do we do with this impending judgment? Is there a way for us to escape God's righteous judgment against us? There are only two ways from immunity from God's righteous judgment. Number one is religion, and number two is repentance. First way, right, religion, is by doing good works through religion. Verse 6, 7, and 10, you will see that he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. In verse 10, but there will be glory honor, and peace for everyone who does good. However, this is actually a bad news for us. If God renders us according to our works, we are hopeless. You and I can try the best, hardest to not sin, try our best to obey all of his commands for the rest of our lives, and we will surely fail. You and I can try to store up good deeds for the rest of our lives, even for eternity, and it will still be insufficient to cancel out the depth of all our sins. If anything, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on that day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But there's a second way, the other way. It is through repentance. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Our own acts of religion does not save us, but our acts of repentance saves us. And God's delayed judgment it should lead us to repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is not just, as we have corporately confessed, it's not just a confession of what you did wrong, but a commitment to turn away from what you did wrong. Not saying you have to be perfect, but a commitment to it. We must also not just repent of our sinfulness, but repent of our self-righteousness. We must not only repent of our immoral activities, but also repent of our moral activities that we use to justify ourselves. There's a quote by Martin Luther. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, 
he will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not just a one-time thing that you do at a retreat or at a revival. One specific sin that you feel really bad about. It is a continual pursuit in the life of a true Christian. But wait, Pastor John, I thought Christianity was all about faith. And how does repentance and faith work together? And if you could show the image that uh, I've uploaded. Uh, I shared this with a membership class or baptism uh, confirmation class as well. So it might be familiar for some of you. Just as repentance is when we begin to see our sins, faith is when we begin to see the person, the works of Jesus Christ. Just as repentance is when we begin to hate our sins, faith is when we begin to love the person and the works of Jesus. Just as repentance is when we begin to turn away from our sins, faith is when we begin to turn to the person and the works of Jesus. So guess what? Faith, faith and repentance, they're two sides of the same coin. They coexist always. So the question is, what does turning to the person and the works of Jesus look like? It is when we trust not in our works, but trust in the works of the only good man, Jesus Christ. Whose religion was truly, perfectly pure and undefiled. And when we trust in this perfect works of Jesus, we are exempt from the righteous judgment and his wrath. This is the redemptive judgment that God poured out his righteous judgment against his own son. And judgment is not even delayed, but is no longer our concern. And guess what happens to those of us who realize this, who place, our fa- who place their faith in Jesus Christ and repent? We can no longer be hypocritical because we see that we all deserve God's righteous judgment. Only through Christ we are released from his judgment and wrath. And so we have nothing to boast about in ourselves other than Jesus. Also, we can no longer pass judgment towards one another, right? Because we begin to see ourselves and others with the same kindness and mercy and patience that God has given to us. In my life, the one individual I passed judgment upon was my earthly father. I harbored deep bitterness towards him. And in my mind, he was an uninvested father, unfaithful husband, that did not deserve my family's forgiveness. So I judged, condemned, punished him, even when he passed away. But God opened my eyes to see my own sins of hatred against my father, right? Murder, right, in the sight of God. I was blind to my own sinfulness because of my own false sense of religiousness. I didn't think that I was that bad. I was now able to see the distance between my religious judgment before God's righteous judgment. 
As a result, I could no longer stay as the judge, nor could I continue to judge my father because I was also a great sinner before the far greater judge. But more than that, I'm a great sinner before the great Savior whose kindness led me to true repentance. The kindness, the kind of kindness that extends to a rebellious enemy like me by calling me his friend, his own child. And God no longer identifies himself as a terrifying judge, but my tender heavenly father. And if God no longer pours his righteous judgment upon me because he extends his gracious mercy to me, what else could I do other than to gratefully with tears receive his mercy? What else could I do other than to extend gracious mercy even to those who may hurt me or judge me? As praising comes up, I want to read us James chapter 2, verse 12 to 13 as we close. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy leads us to get off of our own judgment seats and kneel before the true judge who releases us from our deserving judgment. KCPC, have you forgotten this wonder of God's gracious mercy? Let us get off of our seats of judgment and run to the throne of mercy and grace that triumphs over judgment.